0: Hello and welcome to another episode of misanthropic musings, a podcast where a disgruntled English teacher tries to make reading fun again, or maybe for the first time, who knows. On today's episode, I'm going to be discussing The Yellow Wallpaper, a short story written by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, also known as Charlotte Perkins Stetson, depending on the copy or the edition of the short story you're looking at. Published in 1892, this is a classic of the gothic literature genre. And I think for my purposes today, I'm just going to dive right into the short story. Uh, I'm, I'm making this for an online class, and I want my students to have uh, some some background, some history, uh, some more information about the short story. So. And I'm a little hard-pressed for time, so I'm just going to dive right into it. Now, it seems like a good place to start is with a very simple question, which is, when you hear the word gothic, what do you think of? More than likely, you are picturing someone with a lot of, uh, let's say, makeup. Uh, Maybe their face is pale. Maybe they're wearing some heavy eyeliner, some leather, some mesh clothing i'm gonna read really quick from the wikipedia page this is about the gothic subculture fashion styling gothic fashion is marked by conspicuously dark antiquated and homogenous features it is stereotyped as eerie mysterious complex and exotic a dark sometimes morbid fashion and style of dress dress Typical gothic fashion includes colored black hair and black period-styled clothing. Both male and female goths can wear dark eyeliner and fingernail polish, most especially black. So I think right there is a big clue, a series of clues into the heart of what gothic literature is. This obsession with things that are morbid and uh, the settings are often dark and gloomy. Um, if you think about a horror film, for example, although horror is its own unique genre, horror films tend to begin when things are going well, right? But we know, because of the genre, that, of course, at some point in the movie, the family is going to find out that the house they're living in is haunted. Something's going to go awry. Well, in the same way, Gothic literature forces us to consider what is lurking beneath the surface because one of the themes I would say that gothic literature is really concerned with and and forces us as readers to think about is this gap between how things appear and how they actually are. And we'll get into that a little more as we dig into the Yellow Wallpaper. I want to make a few more quick notes about gothic literature broadly but before i do here's a quick little aside i know i just read something from wikipedia and if there is an academic listening or other teachers listening they might be rolling their eyes right now i don't know because of course wikipedia has this reputation for being not credible and i just want to say personally should you cite it in a research paper should you cite it in your essay no but Wikipedia can be a really helpful place to start your research and get some general knowledge on a topic. Also, oftentimes Wikipedia articles will link you to actual articles that you could uh, cite if they are, depending on what your class is asking for, but there are often, depending on the topic, scholarly, peer-reviewed journals and so on that, that are cited in that Wikipedia article. So. I just think it's a really helpful resource to use in the beginning of your research and to get some general knowledge. And I think we should stop demonizing it and acting like it's, you know, it's the plague, so to speak. All right, here are a few more quick definitions of Gothic literature. This is the Gothic novel. uh, Called Gothic because its imaginative impulse was drawn from medieval buildings and ruins Such novels commonly used such settings as castles or monasteries equipped with subterranean passages, dark battlements, hidden panels, and trap doors. So it's kind of a reference to Gothic architecture. And we will see in this story we're about to read, and in other stories I plan to cover in future episodes, we will see how... The that's changed over time. Now we're not in the world of scary castles, Dracula's castle. We're not in medieval times anymore. But there is still something to be said about the architecture. There's still that that trope of the haunted house, of the decrepit, dilapidated house. Okay, lastly, one more quick definition. Again, this comes to us from our friends at Wikipedia, quote, Gothic fiction, sometimes called Gothic horror in the 20th century, is a loose literary aesthetic of fear and haunting. The name is a reference to Gothic architecture of the European Middle Ages, which was characteristic of the settings of early Gothic novels. So right there is a a key thing to think about. We're no longer in medieval Europe. We're no longer in these big scary castles, but we're now in a world where the houses often need a fresh coat of paint. We don't quite feel, we wouldn't want to stay there. You know, we wouldn't want to book this Airbnb, so to speak. And that's often a clue that when the houses look so run down on the outside, it's often a clue that there's something, maybe the the society that we're talking about, maybe some of the cultural norms are also worn down and, and in need of uh, a facelift. Okay, with that set with that understanding of what Gothic literature is out of the way, I wanna get into the story. And quickly, uh, a lot of people have made much of the story based on the writer, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, and her biography. She herself suffered from postpartum depression, she suffered from mental illness, and uh, we know that this story was inspired in large part by by her experience. I will say, this is my just personal feeling, I think it's useful to interpret a story based on what the story itself tells us. I think it's, it could be useful to understand a, a writer's biography, their background, but for me, the real fun is to just work with what is on the page, just work with the words, just work with the characters, the setting that we're given, because once the author writes their story, it's, it becomes its own entity. It becomes something separate that the author doesn't really have control over anymore. Once it's published, it's published. Again, I think it's, it can be helpful to look at a, an author's biography to kind of get a sense of what they were going for. But my focus and my emphasis and what I encourage people to do is to work with what is actually In the story itself and use that that evidence those details to help you interpret the story. All right I'm going to try to avoid reading the whole thing uh, but I do I'm going to assume that you've already read it, but I do want to read parts of it to, uh, to To talk about in in greater detail so let's Let's get going. This is the yellow wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say, a haunted house and reach the height of romantic felicity, but that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it, else why should it be let so cheaply and why have stood so long untenanted? john laughs at me of course but one expects that in marriage john is practical in the extreme he has no patience with faith an intense horror of superstition and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures okay let's stop here for a moment and analyze the opening passage here this these first couple paragraphs are full of information First of all, we have the trope of the haunted house, or at least of the, well, she she calls it as much, right? She she would say it's a haunted house, but she thinks that it would be too romantic. So she's kind of idealizing this this house. And she knows that something is off about it, but as we see in this first couple paragraphs here, john her husband is the exact opposite of her so she kind of picks up on this she has an intuition and of course this this short story is very gendered in the sense that traditional stereotypical masculine qualities are constantly clashing with more traditional uh, feminine qualities and we see these uh, embodied in the, the narrator and in her husband, John. So right from the beginning, Jane, I believe, as we don't know for sure that's her name, but that's often what she's called because there is someone referred to as Jane in the story. We think she's referring to herself, but so I may say Jane or the narrator, but uh, the narrator has this intuition that something's weird about this house. And John laughs it off, but she says one expects that in marriage right so that tells us a lot about where we're at makes sense given the time period but nevertheless this narrator has internalized the fact that or internalized the notion that she doesn't really have much say in this relationship Um, not only because she's a woman but because john her husband as we go on to read is a physician and he's a very high standing physician so he's he's a professional he's respected in his field and he has no patience, she says, uh, With he has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly about things he can't touch. If he can't touch it, see it, he just sort of dismisses it. Although the narrator, her tone is kind of light and playful, she really has very cynical, low expectations <laughs> of how much agency she has in this marriage. And that. That that sets the tone for the rest of the story. John is a physician, and perhaps I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. Perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick, and what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing that matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics and journeys and air and exercise and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work, with excitement and change, would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while, in spite of them. But it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it. Or else, meet with heavy opposition. Isn't this short story good? I mean, I'm gonna have to stop every two paragraphs to really talk about what's going on here which is going to take all day. We can't do that. Okay. Again, a lot of information is coming up in these couple paragraphs here. So just based on again, what the story is giving us, what is the story giving us? Well, so far it's given us our main character, the narrator who we know has intuition. I mean, again, assuming you've read the story, you know how it ends and you know, what's going on in this, this house. Um, whether it's truly haunted by supernatural forces we can't say and we really don't have any evidence for that right we 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 have to our our best guess given what we're reading is that this is all in the in the narrator's mind but it seems to be the case that her madness her condition her nervous breakdown is a result of her husband's ignorance. Uh, so there's an irony here, you know. There's an irony that John, this physician, her husband, is supposed to know what the heck is going on, and he just doesn't. Uh, he's clueless about how to care for his wife, and she knows what's what's good for her. She says she thinks that uh, having company would would help her with excitement and change, you know, she wants to be around people, she wants to write in her diary here, and her husband doesn't think that that's good for her, he thinks that isolating her, and that's why they're here, that's why they're on this, at this estate, is so she can uh, be by herself, and she is for most of the time, you know, she spends all, all day in this room with this wallpaper that she becomes obsessed with and we know in the story that John leaves for fairly long periods of time to deal with his practice to take care of patients other patients and she's just left there with her own mind with no distractions no way to express herself and it's worth saying that this isn't just a case where the husband is mean for the sake of being mean to his wife he we can read into this story and argue that he's aware of what he's doing but we can also argue that he really doesn't know what he's doing and that he's in the sense that he doesn't he doesn't know that is what's best for his wife even though he thinks he does he has good intentions but at the end of the day she's just left to her own devices and she has no creative expression so that seems to be key as well. That the story isn't just saying the husband's evil and the narrator is good, but that women need to have outlets for expression just as much as anyone else. And when you turn that off, um, it can, in this case, lead to the narrator crawling around on the floor at the end of the story back to the story i sometimes fancy that in my condition if i had less opposition and more society and stimulus but john says the very worst thing i can do is to think about my condition and i confess it always makes me feel bad so i will let it alone and talk about the house the most beautiful place it is quite alone standing well back from the road quite three miles from the village It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden. Large and shady, full of box-bordered paths, and lined with long, grape-covered arbors with seats under them. There were greenhouses, too, but they are all broken now. Okay. Again, the narrator author here is giving us a lot of clues maybe unconsciously there's a lot of talk of gates and locks and hedges so these a lot of uh, objects and structures that are closing in the the narrative so this is sense so that she's she's not only is she isolated we know that she's at this at this mansion this this estate that's three miles away from the closest town and you know this is 1800 so three miles away is not you can't just get in the car and drive down the road right so she's really isolated and then there's there are these greenhouses which we tend to think of when we think of a greenhouse we think of life of lush vegetation of things growing but those are all broken again so again this notion of things being something something there's an absence of vitality here, which is the very thing that this that's that this narrator needs. There was some legal trouble, I believe, something about the heirs and co-heirs anyhow. The place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I'm afraid, but I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlight evening, but he said what I felt was a drought and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself. Before him, at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window and such pretty old-fashioned chintz hangings, but John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window, and not room for two beds, and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving, and hardly lets me stir without special direction." Okay, I'm going to stop here again. So what's going on here? Again, this, the narrator's trying to do her own thing. She's trying to do what's best for her. She knows something's going on. She feels weird about the house. But at every turn, John stops what she wants to do. She wants this window with roses. She wants a view, and why wouldn't she? You know, um, And he won't hear of it. He's, he's after what's convenient for him and what is quote unquote logical for him not necessarily what makes the most sense for her and what's interesting here is this recurring question is john a good guy is he a nice person um we know what what he he does in the end is he he helps facilitate the narrator's descent into madness so in that sense no but does he know what he's doing you know is he trying to make her condition worse. She certainly doesn't think so. She says he's very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir. So she interprets his his control, his urge to control everything she does. she interprets that as oh he's being a good husband because he's trying to take care of everything for me. He doesn't even want me to have to lift a finger when you know she kind of she needs to have some control of her own life gonna skip ahead a bit they start talking about the nursery she says it is a big airy room the whole floor nearly with windows that look all ways and air and sunshine galore it was a nursery first and then playroom and gymnasium i should judge for the windows are barred for little children and there are rings and things in the walls it's kind of weird right it was a playroom a nursery a gymnasium because the the windows are barred so on the one hand a window can be barred for safety at least that's what you can say it's for safety to keep children from opening the window and falling out i suppose but bars are also really good at keeping people locked in so again the question is is this which version of reality is true is it what the narrator seems to think or is was the room maybe a place to keep people locked in she starts talking about the wallpaper this is her first description she says quote it is dull enough to confuse the eye and following pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study and when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard of contradictions. Some strong language there when you're talking about wallpaper. I've copied some notes here. I'm reading from a PDF and I've highlighted some, some passages In this description of the wallpaper pattern, the narrator makes a worrying mention of the curves committing, quote, suicide. This strong language may be indicative of her suicidal ideation and reflects her mental health. Um, A well person's imagination is less likely to use such morbid language when other less violent words will suffice. Yes. So it's kind of a clue there about what's going on in her mind where she's at. She goes on to describe the wallpaper, quote, The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulfur tint in others. No wonder the children hated it. I should hate it myself if I have to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. And then if you're looking at the version I am, you can see how there are these little asterisks in the in the, the PDF to tell us that she's writing this in her diary and we're getting one entry at a time. So there's each entry are these little snapshots, these little moments into what's going on. And her first impression of the yellow wallpaper isn't good. It's very unsettling for her. She calls it repellent, almost revolting and yet this is the room that she's supposed to stay in the whole time she's here. She would think, logically, that if... If John's got to be away all day dealing with all these cases, especially the serious cases, well, then he hers must not be that serious, right? Otherwise, he would be there. So she must be fine. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that he (laughs) is a terrible husband, um, or he's clueless, or he's uh, you know not willing to look at, not he's not willing to listen to her. Um, He's not willing to see what's in front of him john does not know how much i really suffer he knows there is no reason to suffer and that satisfies him again this emphasis on the word reason in the short story it's italicized john is a he's an empiricist if he can't see it touch it if it's not it's not something he can observe measure then it it's not it's not worth giving any credence to of course, it is only nervousness. Now, she can, you can see how she's kind of internalized his framing of this whole situation, right? He's constantly downplaying it, saying it's not important, it doesn't matter, She's it's all in her head, she's imagining things, and guess what? Maybe she is to a degree, in the sense that, as she says earlier, she's imagine she sees people walking in the garden. Now, we can't trust her fully, in the sense that, She's not a perfectly re- reliable narrator. You know, we don't—we have no reason to think that there is a true supernatural force in this short story. This short story, in other words, is not. There's no magic going on here. It's—it's um, it's her mind, but all the same, that makes her a really sympathetic character because it's like she knows the way out. She knows the way to to find herself, but every every opportunity that she has is constantly squandered and shut down because there are these these know it alls around her, these these men of profession and their opinions can't be questioned. Which is really which is a whole different conversation, but you know, aside from forcing us to think about gender roles, uh, this Short story also forces us to think about mental health treatment at the time. And it's a real criticism, I think, of the medical establishment, certainly at that time. And, you know, now we like to think that with modern medicine, we we, we know the answers, but we, we don't always know the answers. In fact, we usually don't know the answer. But I digress. She says, so she's internalized his framing of this. She says it's only nervousness, but we know it's something more than that. I meant to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and here I am, a comparative burden already. Nobody would believe what an effort it is to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain and order things. Well, from a modern perspective, we now know, as we understand more and more about depression, and if you've ever dealt with depression or know someone who has, and you understand that it does take a lot of effort sometimes to do... Little things to dress yourself, to clean. Um, that's why they often say, if you're having a depressive episode, if you're really having a hard time, to focus on one thing, you know, one thing at a time. I'm gonna get out of bed and get out of bed. I'm going to take a shower. You know, try to um, break things down into smaller, manageable things that you can do, so it doesn't seem so so overwhelming. Um, And so it seems here that she is certainly, we have reason to believe that she's certainly depressed. She says, it is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby. So Mary is this caretaker they've hired. Um, I can't remember if that's her sister or not. So I believe Mary is John's sister. Okay. Okay. I suppose John was never nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first, he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards he said that I was letting it get the better of me and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed, it would be the heavy bedstead and then the barred windows and then that gate at the head of the stairs and so on. You know the place is doing you good, he said, and really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house just for a three-month's rental. Then do let us go downstairs, I said. There are such pretty rooms there. Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose and said he would go down cellar, if I wished, and have it whitewashed into the bargain. But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. All right. Again, we have a scene where she's she's pleading she's begging him to have a change of scenery and he laughs it off and i love that that line he calls her a blessed little goose that's uh something you don't hear anymore we should maybe we should bring that back it's going to be hard for me not to read the whole story but i will do my best jumping forward a few paragraphs here she's looking out into the gardens and she says I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbors, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. So, we don't have any reason to think that those people are actually there. Maybe, to a degree, maybe they are, but we don't really have evidence for that. He says that with my imaginative powers and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency so I try. I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me, but I find I get pretty tired when I try. There's a couple things going on here. As I said earlier, the short story isn't just about male-female gender dynamics. It's also it's not just that John is, is evil and she's good and so on, but it's the fact that as a woman, her she's just seen as someone who isn't, doesn't have the needs that a man does in the sense that she doesn't need to express herself. She doesn't need things that um, excite her in the way that a man was. She, she doesn't need hobbies. She doesn't need... Um, to entertain her mind, she doesn't need a creative outlet in the way that she clearly does. And there's something to be said about that, because if she doesn't have an outlet, if she can't, as she says, get use her imaginative power and habit of story-making, is what John calls it, she she says it would relieve the press of ideas so she if she could just write it might help calm her mind a little bit and there is something to be said about that that we all need some way of some some kind of catharsis some way of expressing our feelings and emotions and if she has no stimulus no input coming in except staring at this wallpaper all day of course her mind if she's in this fragile state, is going to deteriorate and going to take over. Allow me to share a quick anecdote here about how I connect with this scene and why I think the author is correct that we, as, as humans, need some kind of outlet. So in 2014 or 15, I believe it was 14, I went on a 10-day Vipassana meditation retreat, and it's a silent retreat. It was in a rural town in South Georgia, and they have it's this really nice facility where you go, and it actually comes out of this very long, thousands of years old tradition of Buddhism, where you follow a specific regimen, a particular type of meditation, and so... At the time, I was really interested in Buddhism and in Eastern mysticism in general. And so, and I had meditated on my own and I wanted to go to this course to get some formal training. And I knew that it would be intense because it's 10 days and it's silent. Now, there are teachers there uh, and you can ask them questions and they'll answer them as far as anything related to the technique or if you're having struggles or difficulties and and they're there for you you can talk to them but you can't just carry on conversations with people like you would every day and they separate the men and the women um, for most of the day but there are three times a day where you go as a group to this big meditation hall Uh, but it's still silent and you follow the instructions that the that the meditation teacher gives you and you follow this strict regimen each day from hour to hour you know what your schedule is going to be most of it involves you meditating Um, you have they feed you they they house you they don't charge you anything Um, and in return you can give a donation or give your time and work at the facility when they host new people so it's very um, they pay it forward in that way but my point here is that over the course of those ten days, you can't—you're not supposed to. I didn't. You can't bring your phone. Um, you can have your phone, in, but it's in your car. But you don't have it on you. You know, you don't have—you're uh, not looking at your phone. You're not reading anything. You're supposed to dress plainly, so you're not. There's not any kind of st- stimulus coming in. You know, you're not being bombarded with. TV shows and Twitter feeds and, uh, you know, your phone ringing and the day-to-day stuff of life is not pressing upon you. And in that kind of environment, your mind can go inward and you can tap into, or at least I was able to tap into memories that I thought that I didn't didn't remember previously um and just little things take on more meaning and you start to you know you're you can really dive deep into your mind because at the end of the day cell phones and stranger things which is what i'm binging at the moment you know whatever it is it's 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 entertainment yes but it's also a distraction because you consume it. It's doing all the work for you. It's entertaining you. You're just sitting there. But when you don't have all that stuff, your mind has an opportunity to go to places that it normally wouldn't. And that can be very helpful and very therapeutic because it allows you to maybe deal with some stuff that's uh, just clogging up, you know, your your psyche and they can also be <laughs> it can also be challenging let's say if you've got some things that you're not dealing with but all of that to say when I read this story I understand what the author's getting at here because when you're isolated and in, in a lot of ways my situation was similar to hers in the sense that we didn't have distractions we didn't have things to to draw our attention. So I went there voluntarily. I'm not comparing my situation to hers in that sense. But just that we both were not drawn into... We didn't have phones. We weren't paying attention to other things. So our mind had the chance to ruminate and go to places that it wouldn't normally. And like I said, that can be either really helpful... Or it can be challenging, which can also be helpful if you're able to work through those feelings and through those thoughts. Before I move along, I want to mention one thing about the section I read earlier when she says, It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby. Notice what the author is setting up there. So Mary is fulfilling the domestic roles that the narrator is expected to fill but because she's sick because she has what we would now consider postpartum depression she's not able to be there for the well first of all maybe she's not able to in the sense that she is suffering mentally but she probably we also get the sense that she's not allowed to she's not allowed to see the baby so it's this self-fulfilling prophecy that she's locked into, or this cycle where the thing she needs to get out of it is being denied from her, so then she can't get out of it, and it's just this just this cycle. But Mary, she's good with the baby. Mary is, is fulfilling all the the roles that the narrator is expected to fill, and of course that's going to make her feel worse about herself because she's not being a good woman you know she's not being a good mother in the sense that she's expected to all right back to the story this is i believe the second time she describes the wallpaper i wish i could get well faster but i must not think about that this paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had there is a recurrent spot where the pattern lulls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl, and those absurd unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of the blank walls and plain furniture than, mo- than most children could find in a toy store. So we can see the more and more time she spends in this room, the more focused she becomes on it, the more she thinks about it, and we can see things are not getting better for her. She's moving in the wrong direction. She goes on. There there comes John's sister, such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which made me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that just looks off over the country. A lovely country too full of great elms and velvet meadows this wallpaper has a kind of sub pattern in a a different shade a particularly irritating one for you can only see it in certain lights and not clearly then but in the places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so i can see a strange provoking formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design There's sister on the stairs, and that section ends. So I believe this, when she says there's sister, she's really talking about John's, yes, there's John's sister. Again, she says it right there. She's a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper and hopes for no better profession. So the short story is also giving us this comparison or this contrast between the narrator and, the sickly woman who is struggling with mental illness, and then the the counter, the foil, really, John's sister, who is everything that the narrator is not. Speaking of foil, we need to know the definition of this term. So I'm reading from literarydevices.net. Sounds like a name we can trust. Quote, foil is a literary device designed to illustrate or reveal information, traits, values, or motivations of one character through the comparison and contrast of another. Exactly. We're contrasting the narrator with John's sister, Mary. Mary comes in and basically takes over the role of mother. We might forget, we might almost forget that the narrator has had a kid recently, but where's the baby in this story? We hear just the briefest mentions of it, but there's no scene with the child. There's no interactions. So, on the one hand, we have Jane, which we which seems to be the name of the narrator, um, who is seen as this fragile thing that's going to break if they let her do anything. And then on the, on the other hand, we have mary who very much acts the way that women are expected to act certainly in this period she's taking care of the house she's taking care of the children and so that that contrasting those two characters allows us some some deeper insight into what's going on there with the narrator i wanted to check myself and i'm glad i did so mary is the nursemaid she's a live-in caretaker, it seems, that the husband has hired. Ginny is John's sister. It's easy to get those two characters conflated because this is all told from the first-person perspective, but there's not a lot of character development for these other characters, so... And they just kind of pop in and out. So I just wanted to make that clear. Folks, I am over 40 minutes into this episode. And there I'm on page 4 of a 10-page document. So I'm going to have to skip around here a little bit. As, as much as it hurts me to say. But, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. You got to do what you got to do. So picking it back up here. Jenny's coming up the stairs. Is she going to catch her? Oh, no, she doesn't. We go to the next section. The narrator says that if she doesn't get better soon, John is going to send her to Ware Mitchell, where Mitchell is a guy who invented the rescue cure, which is the cure that she's being subjected to right now. And so it's kind of like saying, "Well, hey, if it doesn't get, you don't get better here. I'm going to send you to the main, the main guy who started this whole thing." And we don't want that. We do get the sense about halfway into the story that the, that the narrator is, well, we've had the sense, but really now we're getting the sense more and more that she's changing. Something's going on in her. Uh, she's questioning John, and she's questioning her brother more and more. So there's this sense of, of becoming more self-aware in a way. While she's simultaneously losing her mind, she seems to also be more aware in other ways. So there's this kind of weird, uh, this weird conundrum here for her. And In fact, the story could suggest that in order to find herself, in order to break away from the strict gender roles, from her, her oppressive marriage, from this Prison, essentially, that she's in. She had to lose her mind. She had to go out of her mind. To get freedom, and and while there's something in that, also, what kind of what kind of freedom is it when you have to lose your mind to to get it? I don't know. That doesn't sound like true freedom to me. Skipping ahead a few paragraphs, she says, "I'm getting really fond of the room, in spite of the wallpaper, perhaps because." of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. I lie here on this great, immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe, and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say at the bottom, down in the corner, over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of conclusion. So, she mentions here that the bed has been nailed down. I think that's pretty significant. If we go back to the beginning of the story, she mentions that the nursery has these bars over the window, these rings, so we, these, I believe they are these chains coming out of the wall, so we get the sense that she might have been, this might have been an asylum in the past, and what does that say about the house that she's in, right, at this place used to halt used to literally restrict people from moving. Used to physically tie them down in that same way, even though she can kinda of walk around the grounds and this and that, she too is also very much chained down, is she not? So she goes on this long description about the wallpaper. I'm gonna to skip to the next section. She says, I don't I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd, but I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief. Dear John, and I'm skipping around, but dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how much I wish he would let me go and make a visit to cousin Henry and Julia, but he said I wasn't able to go nor able to stand it after I got there. And I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms and just carried me upstairs and laid me on the bed and sat by me and read to me till it tired my head. So, again, the, the author just keeps hitting this again and again, and again and again, which is at the same time that John is, if not the initial cause of her mental distress, he's certainly making it worse. He's the main reason that it gets worse because he's, he's, he's in control. So at the same time that he's causing the situation to get worse, he's also from the surface being a really nice husband from the surface you know he's he's trying to care as a a doctor he's trying to care for his wife he's making sure she takes the rest cure which you can imagine is the latest form of treatment so that seems good it's the new way to treat a condition he's carrying her in his arms. it's a very loving image we get there is it not he gathers her up in his arms and carries her upstairs lays her on he's tucking her in he sat by her and read to her. So again, there's this, there's this paradox here where I, th- I feel like John is trying to be a good husband. And from the surface, it looks like he is. But as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, Gothic literature is always trying to get us to think about the difference between how things appear and how they actually are. And we get a real clear image of that here in this this passage. Back to the story. There are th- things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind, that outside pattern the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder, I begin to think... I wish john would take me away from here again the story is is documenting this woman's descent into madness and when the story begins she's fairly lucid she's clear-headed she is in consensus reality for the most part by the end of it she's gone mad she's crawling around on the ground and she's hallucinating so there is a be- there's a beginning a middle and an end here and degrees in the middle and each step of the way we get these little updates she's not she's not doing well at this point next section it is so hard to talk with john about my case because he is so wise and because he loves me so but i tried it last night it was moonlight the moon shines in all around just as the sun does I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly and always comes in by one window or another. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move. And when I came back, John was awake. What is it, little girl? He said. He calls his wife, little girl. I mean, come on. This is infantilizing. And they they, they seem to have more of a weird father-daughter. It's... I mean, it's his wife, but he calls her little girl. It's very demeaning, is it not? Don't go walking about like that. You'll get cold. I thought it was a good time to talk, so I told him that I really was not gaining here and that I wished he would take me away. Why, darling, said he, our lease will be up in three weeks, and I can't see how to leave before. The repairs are not done at home. And I cannot possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in any danger, I could and would. But you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. So for her, she, again, it's this notion of intuition versus John's empiricism. He's thinking about the money. He's thinking about, you know, we want to get our money out of this lease. We can't go back home because they're, they're working on our house. They're doing the repairs. Now, if you were in real danger, of course, I would, I would get you out of here. So he's, he's blind to the situation. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. Bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. There's a southern term right there. This isn't really a southern gothic story, but there it is. She shall be as sick as she pleases. So he's essentially saying here, you're going to, you're choosing to be sick. You're choosing to focus on the bad. And doing that is going to make you sick. Um, he, He... you can't fault the guy for, for not being optimistic. He's just He just doesn't know what he's doing. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked, gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It is only three weeks more, and then we will take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. Really, dear, you are better. Better in body, perhaps, I began and stopped short, For he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look that I could not say another word. My darling, said he, I beg of you for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I, I wasn't, and lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. So this is a, this is a big moment where she finally works up the courage to have the uncomfortable conversation, and he puts his foot down. And how, how so? He, well, he falls back on his position in society can you not trust me as a physician when i tell you so so there's this kind of battle going on between her her intuition which is characterized as feminine in this story and then his masculine um his masculine role as a man of of medicine of sort of of science in a way um and how You know, I mean, the story would suggest that when you ignore intuition, when you ignore the feminine, you are essentially uh, condemning women to, um, to madness in this case. So, let's continue, shall we? In the next section the narrator describes the pattern again she's becoming progressively obsessed with it because again in the lack with a lack of other things to focus on it's really all she has and she just keeps tumbling down that that rabbit hole and she's convinced that Ginny now is trying to find out the secret of the wallpaper and she she has she says i am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself so She needs a purpose. The narrator needs a purpose. And in the absence of one, she's created this goal of being the only person who can discover the secret of the wallpaper. The next section. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better and am more quiet than I was. So being quiet is a good thing, I guess. John is so pleased to see me improve, he laughed a little the other day and said I seem to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would make fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. Well, there is a turn. There's a surprise. Now she can't She couldn't get away from the wallpaper fast enough, and now she's fascinated by it. It's almost like it's hypnotized her in some way, and she she can't leave before she discovers the secret. She goes back to describing the wallpaper. She says, "There is something else about paper—the smell. I noticed at the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun, it was not bad. Now we have had a week of fog and rain." And whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlor, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. So what she's done here is she's, this is an example of personification. And we may already know what that is, but if not, personification is when you give human-like qualities to something that isn't human to an an, an inanimate object. And personification is another literary device that you will often see authors use to describe things in a more vivid manner. I think that's a hint, hint. I think that's a definition that you will do well to remember, let's say. She says, There is a funny, very funny mark on this wall. Low down, near the mop board, a streak that runs the room. It goes behind every piece. So again, this streak runs around the room. So the smell, the mark, the wallpaper itself, this is the author's way of making it seem like this thing is coming to life. And it's certainly coming to life for the narrator. It's almost like it's a living thing now. She goes on, Through watching so much at night when it changes so, I have finally found out the front pattern does move. And no wonder, the woman behind shakes it. Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one. And she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. So, in this passage, she says... Sometimes I think there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one. In this way, this section of the story, it's as if the narrator is, again, there's no reason to think that there's anything supernatural happening. This, insofar as we can tell, seems to be a projection of the narrator's mind. But nevertheless, in her own mind, it is significant that she seems to be taking on the let's call it generational um limitations placed on women and especially trauma in this sense because if this this room she's in if it was part of a former asylum then you can imagine the kinds of uh, experiments and and mistreatment of, of people that went on there Um, If you really want to go down a rabbit hole, Google the history of asylums in the United States, because uh, a lot of experiments used to be done on on people who were living in asylums. And uh, it's not pretty, (laughs) that history. So thinking of that, it's as if in this moment, she sees not only her own struggles, but sort of the struggles for women at large in that moment. There's a great many women in the wallpaper. It's like all of them are, it's all of them and only one at one time because they're all sharing in some form or another an essential struggle. All right, we're in the home stretch um, on page eight of the 10-page PDF, I'm going to jump around a little bit. Again, it's I'm, I'm in this weird position where I don't want to... I have to assume that people have already read the story, because there's, there's not enough time, literally there's not enough time, for me to read it and to talk about it in a lot of great detail. But I also kind of want people to get a sense of the whole story. Like, I'd like you to be able to listen to the episode and walk away from it knowing what the actual plot is as well so I'm tempted to just read those key scenes so you'll know what the whole plot is but alas so now we're getting we're at the next to no we're in the last next to last section we learn what her goal is her goal is to get the wallpaper off the wall she says There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. So now she's becoming more and more paranoid about this. And I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me. She had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night for all. I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions, too, and pretended to be very loving and kind. So that's a key moment there that's an interesting twist because now she's saying he pretended to be very loving and kind before she just took him at face value and now she seems to think that he's putting on an act which raises that question is he is he in fact putting on an act my answer i don't think he is i think he's just ill-informed and he's just being a typical you know he's just being a typical dude at that time right But she's so she's becoming more and more paranoid. She thinks that they're trying to stop her from ripping the paper off, finding the woman in the wallpaper. Last section, and I'm just gonna read, I'll just read the last section to take us home. She says, This is the last day, but it is, but it is enough, John, to stay in town overnight. I think there's some typos in this PDF, a few typos. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly rest better for a night all alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake the pattern I got up and ran to help her. I don't want to go out and I don't want to have anybody come in till John comes. I want to ast- Donish him. I've got a rope up here that even Ginny did not find. If that woman does get out and try to get away, I can tie her. Okay, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. She says the bedstead is fairly gnawed. She's the one gnawing the bed, isn't she? She didn't mention the bed was gnawed when she first got there, when she was a little clearer headed. And... She wants to astonish John, she says. So in a way, it seems like she's repressed all of these feelings and all these emotions. And now she's trying to get back at John. She wants to shock him. She goes on. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on. The bed will not move. I tried to lift and push it until I was lame, and then I got so angry I bit off a little piece at one corner, but it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor. It sticks horribly and the pattern just enjoys it, and all those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and waddling fungus growths just shriek with derision. I am getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong even to try. Besides, I wouldn't do it, of course not. I know well enough a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows even. There are so many of those creeping women and they creep so fast. Again, there's a switch here happening, right? Before, all she could do was just look out. All she wanted to do was look outside to get outside to get away from the room. She's crossed over to the other side now, where now she can't even bear to look outside. And she doesn't want anybody to get in, either. I wonder if they all come out of that wallpaper as I did, but I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to. For outside, you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor, and... My shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall, so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man, you can't open it. Okay, look what's happened there. She calls him young man. Remember before he called her, what did he call her? Little goose at one point, and then he called her little girl. So now there's a reversal in the roles, right? She, She's descended into madness. She's convinced that there's a woman in the wallpaper, she's tearing the paper off the wall she's having she's at her low point here she's hitting she's hitting rock bottom and hard and yet this is the one moment where she seems to be in control ironically she seems to have some power over john he's a young man now so she's she's kind of in this motherly role again weird it's weird because they're husband and wife and they seem to act more like uh, fathers and, and mothers and sons and daughters but uh, that's that's an, it's beside the point all right how he does call and pound now he's crying for an axe it would be a shame to break down that beautiful door John, dear, I said in the gentlest voice, the the key is down by the front steps under a plantain leaf. That silenced him for a few moments. Then he said very quietly indeed, Open the door, my darling. I, I can't, said I, the key is down by the front door under a plantain leaf. And then I said it again several times, very gently and slowly, and said it so often that He had to go and see, and he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped, short, by the door. "'What is the matter?' he cried. "'For God's sake, what are you doing?' I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. "'I've got out at last,' said I, "'in spite of you and Jane, and I've pulled off most of the paper, "'so you can't put me back.' Now, why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. Wow. Now, there is an image that we're left with where the final final moment of the story, John is passed out, and she's crawling over him. So there's that image where, at least physically, she's the dominant... Force in that picture, right? She's physically over him. He's unconscious. So, again, there's this weird conundrum, this paradox where, I mean, this is not a, this is not, this is not bode well for women. If this, the story seems to suggest that the only sense of freedom this woman has comes at the cost of her sanity, and you have to wonder. Is this something that she chose in a way? You know, maybe she sees no way out of this. And he's already threatened to send her to Ware Mitchell, the guy who created the rest cure in the first place. And he's... John has demonstrated time and time again that he's not willing to listen to her. And it's whatever he wants. So, does Jane decide, well, if I don't get to live my life if i'm stuck in this marriage if i'm stuck doing this rest cure maybe i should lose my mind to get freedom i don't know it's something to think about the last thing i want to leave you with is to think about the themes that we noticed in the story i've mentioned gender that's a huge one there's a lack of agency for women in the story, and we get the comparisons between the narrator and the uh, and jenny and the the nursemaid about what it means to be quote a quote good woman. We also have notions of captivity. You know, is this this woman in a way she's a prisoner? Yes. She has some sense of freedom. She's not She's not. in a jail cell, per se, but at the same moment, if you can't leave, aren't you kind of a prisoner? We have themes of isolation, which is huge in Gothic literature, and we'll continue to see that one again and again, just as well as we'll, we will continue to see madness. And the question of what does it mean to be normal? What does it mean to be mad or insane? I mean, is you could say that John is insane in the sense that you can't treat people that way. You can't just make decisions for them if they're an adult, but that's what he does. Well, that's what the whole story is. So who's to say who's really sane and insane in that and that aspect? And we also have social class here. this it's not a, a, an obvious part of the story, but it it's there For one, the f- fact that the narrator and her husband are able to afford to go to this what is essentially an estate, a mansion, and stay for the whole summer. These are some... This is not a poor guy. This is not a poor couple. Well, you get the sense that they're doing okay financially, and yet this is still how she's being treated. Imagine how it is for people that are even poorer than her. You know, she's in some position of privilege, um... In the sense that she isn't dirt poor, you know, not to say that her her circumstances aren't serious, they are, but my point is, imagine how it is for people who don't have money. Um, so gender, captivity, isolation, madness, social class. These are just some of the themes that I think about time and time again when I when I read the story. And I encourage you to think about your own interpretation of these themes or other themes that you've identified and what you think the story is trying to tell us about those themes through the use of those themes. You know, what are they trying to say about gender or about class or about madness or about Isolation and so on. On that note, I'll leave you to ponder those questions. I am going to go now. I hope you enjoyed the story. I hope you enjoyed my attempt to read the story. And I hope that you are able to think about it differently maybe than you were before. Until next time goodbye she isn't dirt poor you know not to say that her her circumstances aren't serious they are but my point is imagine how it is for people who don't have money Um, so gender captivity isolation madness social class these are just some of the themes that I think about time and time again when I when I read the story. And I encourage you to think about your own interpretation of these themes or other themes that you've identified and what you think the story is trying to tell us about those themes through the use of those themes. You know, what are they trying to say about gender or about class or about madness or about Isolation and so on. On that note, I'll leave you to ponder those questions. I am going to go now. I hope you enjoyed the story. I hope you enjoyed my attempt to read the story. And I hope that you are able to think about it differently maybe than you were before. Until next time. Goodbye.